Hello and welcome to The Pulse. In this week's show, Hong Kong's new press freedom index, its conclusions are not reassuring. And the second part of our report on the fallout for local residents when that giant property bubble burst in China's Ordos City. But first, Hong Kong's 67 billion express rail link between Hong Kong and Guangzhou was already said to be the most expensive ever built in per kilometre terms. Well, now it looks as though it's going to be even more expensive. And if you're considering a journey on the new railway, plan to wait longer, at least two years longer. Suspicions that completion of the express rail link would be delayed surfaced as early as last year. Large mounds of earth at the West Kowloon construction site only added to the doubts. The project was initially planned to be completed in 2015, but it wasn't until last week that the government admitted there'd be a delay of at least two years. Even last year, internal documents leaked from the MTR Corporation suggested there could be delays and budget overruns. In answering legislators' questions last May, the government admitted the project faced problems. Completion for the project by 2015 is no longer achievable. We have to say we are very sorry. It's not only the MTR Corporation that's come in for criticism. The government, after all, is supposed to be supervising the project. The public department actually established a post of uh, chief engineer in 2008 for the high-speed narrow project. Uh, he needed to be responsible for a team of around 10 engineers uh, in all grades, and it is a special task force for the high-speed narrow project, but it still can't find any uh, problems that MTRO uh, uh, is now facing. The administration should be followed and investigated by the ombudsman. A project supervision committee led by the director of the highways department was established to check on four major areas in the express rail project. One of them is scheduling and progress. The government says the team sits in on monthly report meetings held by the MTRC to monitor the progress. External consultant is also employed to monitor and verify MTRC's work. So far, no officials from the highways department have come out to respond. The Pulse asked if the project supervision committee had inquired about potential delays in previous years and if there were relevant reports. We also asked whether the external consultant had detected any risks or whether the MTRC had violated the government's trust. We received no answer. However, 
Anthony Zhang's recent comments suggest there were concerns. Questions remain about why the government believed the project could be completed on time, even though it already had at least some information about potential delays. They are not doing a job in a way that I feel it should be done. There are two ways of uh, doing monitoring. One is to do it through Q&A. I ask a question, you answer, all right? And I take your answer on face value. The other way is to ask for detailed documents and then go even further beyond paper, go down the site and take a look at the site. The government has said that the project supervision committee is high level and interdepartmental. A look at the member list suggests otherwise. There's only one department involved, the highways department. For an interdepartmental committee, you would think that uh, all the relevant departments with the necessary skills will be there. For example, um, excavation uh, is the main uh, works in this uh, contract. And so the geotechnical engineering office, they are supposed to have the best skills in the government uh, about uh, underground geology uh, and all the complexities related to uh, underground work. Excavation difficulties at the West Kowloon terminus and the cross-border section were the main reasons given for the delay. Strangely, uh, you also find some MTRC officers sitting there as well. So instead of a supervision committee, this looks more like a coordination committee between MTRC and government officials. So can it really function as a proper supervision committee uh, is a big question. While it's the highways department itself that was largely charged with monitoring the project, the government has now asked for an independent review and an assessment report on the project's progress. That could be a little compromised, given that the source of that independent review and report is the highways department itself. It has to set up an independent panel comprising external independent experts who can actually look into both the uh, management problems in MTRC but also the supervision problems uh, within the government level as well. On Wednesday this week, Thomas Brunegard, the president of the World Association of Newspapers, told an international conference in Hong Kong that he was concerned about the decline of press freedom in the city. In February, Reporters Without Borders ranked Hong Kong 61st for press freedom worldwide, a long way below its 18th place in 2002. And this week, the Hong Kong Journalists Association announced a new Hong Kong Press Freedom Index. Well, with us in the studio is the HKJA's Mac Ying Ting. Mac Ying Ting, can I ask you first of all, what, what does this index tell us that we don't already know about the state of press freedom? According to the findings we have, that um, we are if from zero to 100, then uh, according to the general public, that is. Our, our weight is 49.4, which means slightly negative. And the uh, journalists feel the heat more seriously. And they find and they raise that the press freedom index is 
42.0, which is definitely negative. Um, we hope, you know, according to this figure, has not including the um, attack on Kevin Now, the former. Um, what you mean? They, in other words, the survey was taken before the, yes. uh, that attack so took place. Yes. So you can yeah. imagine if it was taken after the attack, and the sudden determination of uh, program hosts in the commercial radio, then the situation will be much worse. And even though it is, it's worse enough now. <laughs> and we also we we would like to highlight that um, amongst the, uh, the the factor that. Uh, formulate the index, we find that both the public and the um, journalists are found that the most um, negative factor is the self-censorship of uh, the journalists. And in the general public, it was about um, 6.2. And for the journalists, it was 6.9. So you can imagine that so and you mean which out, out of, 10 is out the of a worst. possible score of 10, they got six? Yeah. Right. And even the, even the general public know that the self-censorship in Hong Kong is, is very worse and should be Isn't, isn't the whole thing about self-censorship, though, that it, of course, isn't in the open? That there's no precise way of really knowing whether self-censorship occurs? Well, for the general public, they, they, it may be an impression. But for the media is set themselves. They know it very well because you know, you will curate how your supervisor tell you to do that, not to do that. Or even sometimes they will bluntly, bluntly telling you that you better take it out or even stop you from doing different kinds of story. So this tells very exactly. The, the um, chief executive this week, in fact at the conference we were just talking about, the. World Association of Newspapers made what sounded like a very unequivocal commitment to press freedom, media freedom. Were you um, in any way uh, satisfied by that? Did you take comfort from that? Well, of course not. These are always important than worse. It, we have taken so many empty promises from the chief executive. Remember, he has signed the, freedom, the Press Freedom Charter with the Hong Kong Journalists Association in year 2012. And now, two years on, there's nothing that he had implemented or honor the check, specifically the enactment of the um, Press Freedom, the Access to Information Act. Mm. He had signed the charter and saying that he will create an open and transparent environment to, so that the uh, enactment of this legislation can be proceed but he just declined to do anything. So what an empty promise used for us. Well, Matt Kington, thank you very much indeed. And we'll be back after the break. Welcome back. Last week, we reported on what's been called China's largest ghost town, the Kambashi New Area Development which is part of Ordos City in Inner Mongolia. There was a property bubble. It burst, but the cost is more than empty buildings and abandoned construction projects. Some 90% of the residents of Ordos City are said to have lent to or invested money in this project. And now, Ordos City is a city of debt. 
辛苦挣回来的钱，我不能好像一碗水就这洒在地上收不回来了吧？你说这是不管少不减？我真不知道我犯罪，但是我也是个受害者，我的钱放在里边了。For the people of Odok City in Inner Mongolia, today is a traditional day to celebrate a good harvest. But over the past couple of years, things have changed. Both Yang Wang Rong and his wife are residents of Odok City. They have not only seen the local boom and bust development, they have also become victims of it. In 2010, Ordok City local authorities, following the central government's urbanization policy, planned a new town in the area. This attracted plenty of hot money. Yang Guangrong's boss thought this was a good chance to invest in a government project. He asked Yang to join him. He said he to lend 2.3 million RMB to his boss, Yang asked his relatives and friends for a million to combine with his own savings. He had worked out that at a monthly 3% interest rate, he would have made 800,000 RMB profit in just a year. In 2011, the central government tightened up its regulatory and control mechanism. The banks put bricks on lending, and as a result, many building projects were frozen due to lack of funds. Then the price of coal plummeted. Half of the local coal mines stopped working. Odox, a city full of lenders, became as a city of lenders chasing their debtors. Mr. Zhang is one of government contractors hired to take care of landscaping in the area. He says he's completed the project more than three years ago and still hasn't received the 30 million renminbi he was supposed to get.
the local government was in debt to enterprises. The enterprises were in debt to civil lending companies. Those lending companies were in debt to individual residents. The financial mess spread like cancer. Mengling-ai is illiterate, but in order to sign a contract, she made a special effort to learn how to write her name. Meng owned a big piece of farmland in the middle of town. In 2010, as the government planned to develop a new town there, Meng was awarded compensation of about 8 million renminbi for moving out. Meng lent 8 million renminbi to a good friend. He promised that he would pay 3% interest a month, paying her a total of 10 million at the end of the year. In China, high interest lending doesn't violate any laws. However, in 1998, the State Council enacted a new law under which those involved in such capital transactions, without the approval of the Bank of China or otherwise collecting capital illegally, would be guilty of a criminal offense. In 2011, the Public Security Bureau set up a department to combat the illegal collection of funds from the public. It said the department would be dedicated to taking care of such illegal borrowing tactics. Its slogan says it provides justice for lenders. However, it can do little more than offer restitution by confiscating the debtors' assets and, if lucky, selling them to raise cash. Many money lenders in Ordo City are in the same position as Meng Ling Ai. They often go to the department to ask it to chase debtors. All they get in return is unfinished residential properties. The media have dubbed Ordok City China's super debt town. But the local government does not admit that the lending and borrowing spree in the community has caused serious social problems. Nationwide over the past three years, about 4,000 people have been charged with violating the law against lending funds without approval. Only 10 of those cases were in Ordox. Initially a lender, Yang Guangrong is now dubbed a criminal. 
and the cost on this family has been high. China's get-rich-quick dream has become an immeasurably damaging nightmare for Odok City. Its aftermath is a burst property bubble, piles of debts unpaid by the government and by developers, unfinished construction sites, and an almost uncountable number of individual victims. And I'm afraid that's it from us for this week. We'll see you at the same time next week. Until then, goodbye.